All right, it is 630, so we'll go ahead and get started. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Um, I want to, I know you've probably seen some of our webinars in the past, but just as a reminder, we are in webinar mode, which means we cannot see you, we cannot hear you, but you can communicate with us through the chat box. So if you have questions or comments, please feel free to put those in the chat box. We'll try to get to them towards the end of the presentation. Um, we are recording this and we will send out the recording, um, I think probably early tomorrow or later on tonight. You should get that in your email. Um, I'm Michelle Morris with Consolidated Planning Group. I work with Allison, but she gets to be on vacation tonight. So she sent me um, in her place to run this webinar tonight. Um, again, put all your questions and comments in the chat. We'll get to those as quickly as possible. Um, but I don't want to take too much time talking because you're not here to see me. You are here to see Dr. Lindsay Asawa. So thank you so much, Lindsay, for being with us tonight and for um, presenting this information. And I will let you take it away from here. Okay. Hi, everyone. So I just want to give a quick plug to ADDA because um, I was just talking to Michelle about the fact that Allison and I kind of took over the Fort Bend chapter of ADDA several years ago, and um, it's been really fun to watch it grow. And this is an awesome organization and provides really good resources. There's a a um, conference every spring that's really awesome and really helpful for parents and for professionals. And so I highly recommend that. And lots of just good webinars from our local chapter as well as some of the other chapters. So that's just my plug for ADDA. <laughs> um, okay, so let me go ahead and get into this. I'll introduce myself first. So I am a licensed psychologist, a licensed clinical psychologist, and I am a co-owner of a practice in Missouri City called Missouri City Family Counseling, and um, I do lots and lots of evaluations for kids and adults and teens, and we get lots of, um, lots of people who are coming in um, who are needing evaluations for ADHD, and then we also have a group of therapists at our practice who provide individual counseling, family counseling, couples therapy. Um, we have groups that we run. So we try to provide lots of different resources, but I would say that the diagnosis of ADHD is one of the main things that we deal with on a regular basis. And this is, for me, it's kind of a passion, um, not just because I've been working with individuals with this diagnosis for so many years, but personally, I also have, I have three kids and two with formal diagnoses of ADHD. And so I'm dealing with this from both ends. So I can empathize as a parent. And I dealt with one of these meltdowns tonight before this <laughs> presentation. So I know what it's like, um, but I also have dealt with it from the side of trying to understand um, what's happening, trying to understand the brain relationship to the behavior and trying to deal with um, how do we work on these issues. So um, hopefully I can share some of that with you guys today. And I have my email address in the chat and I have my website up there on the screen and, and phone numbers. So feel free to contact me if you guys have questions after this presentation, especially if we can't get through a lot of questions today. So why is this a problem, these overreactions and meltdowns for individuals with ADHD? So there's a lot of reasons why it's a problem, but um, here's a list of some of the, the common things that we see with children who have ADHD brains. And these are all things that can contribute in some ways to um, overreactions and meltdowns and just emotion dysregulation. So they have a tendency towards getting overstimulated. Um, there's sensory seeking. Um, tendencies for lots of kids with ADHD, trying to seek out sensory input, um, which can sometimes lead to overstimulation. We have lots of low frustration tolerance and difficulty handling frustration. Um, the impulsivity leads to lots of impatience and rushing through things, which can also trigger some of those meltdowns. 
Um, kids with ADHD tend to be more emotionally sensitive. So that's another one of those um, associations with emotional meltdowns. We, they have poor problem solving skills at times. They lack awareness of themselves and their surroundings at times. Um, they have a tendency towards this emotional intensity or otherwise known as flooding. So just those emotions kind of flooding the brain. And uh, we'll talk about why that happens, but um, that's part of what we're seeing when we get these big emotional reactions that seem to be overreactions. They don't quite fit the trigger. Um, and then, like I mentioned with impulsivity, that also um, relates to just acting without thinking through the consequences. So just acting on impulse in that moment based on how they are feeling. So these are all things that we see with children with ADHD and all of these things contribute to this issue of emotion dysregulation. And in, in our diagnostic manual, when we diagnose ADHD, this is um, emotional outbursts and emotion dysregulation is not one of the symptoms. It's not one of, one of the formal diagnostic symptoms. However, almost anybody in the mental health field who has ever worked with this diagnosis will tell you that it is part of the overarching problem. And so we see it across the board at all age groups. Um, it's one of the things that can be, that can lead to the most frustrations within the household and in the classroom at school. Um, so it's, it's a big concern. And a lot of people don't understand that this is part of the diagnosis and it's an important part of the diagnosis. So that's one reason I wanted to do this presentation to kind of bring attention to this and highlight it and talk more about it. So, okay, so I wanted to just briefly talk about the ADHD brain and I'm not gonna go into tons of detail and I know this can get very complicated at times so I'm keeping it really simple. There's just two areas of the brain that we talk about a lot when we talk about ADHD because we know that people who have ADHD brains, their brains are wired differently. Um, than the average population. And some of that difference in wiring, we find it up here in the prefrontal cortex, and then we find it down inside at the, towards the bottom in that limbic system. And I'm gonna tell you guys what we're seeing in both of those parts of the brain and how those relate to emotion regulation and these big overreactions and meltdowns that we see. So first, the prefrontal cortex. So let me tell you a couple quick things. Um, and this is just a, I'm really summarizing. There's tons of research on this, lots of books out there. Um, and so I'm trying to put it all into one slide, but basically what, what the research has shown is that in the prefrontal cortex for individuals with ADHD, we're seeing three main things. So less neurotransmitter activity than in a non-ADHD brain in the control group. And you can see that in that, in that picture on the left. So just, uh, in a normal moment, in any typical moment, there's gonna be less stimulation going on in this frontal area of the brain in an ADHD brain than there would be in a non-ADHD brain. And it's because there's, there's um, a lower amount of those neuro neurotransmitters being transmitted throughout that part of the brain. There's also, they've found lower volume in those areas, that frontal prefrontal cortex area of the brain, and they have found a delay, a developmental delay. And so on the, the picture on the right kind of gives you an idea of what they're seeing with that developmental delay. There's areas up at the front that can be sometimes have a delay of more than two years. Um, so they can be about two years behind the average child in the development of that part of the brain. And then there's other areas that are zero to two years delayed. So if we're thinking about this as a developmental delay, then we also need to look at our kids with ADHD brains and think about sometimes their behaviors may look like a younger child. We need to, we need to compare maybe a 10 year old with an ADHD brain to the behavior or the emotion regulation and the self-control of a seven or eight year old. And I hear this all the time from parents that there's, that they're noticing the, these signs of immaturity and that there's kind of a disconnect that they have a very smart child but they're making very poor decisions and they have very poor self-control. And there's kind of this gap that we're seeing. And this is the reason why, because we have found this developmental delay in that front part of the brain and a difference in the 
the stimulation or the activity going on in that part of the brain. So I, I talk about it with families, like there's a light switch in this front part of the brain. And so a person with ADHD, that light switch is sometimes turned, down, turned off when it should be turned on. And they don't have the control over the light switch that a person without ADHD would have. So that's one of the major differences. And what that leads to is this right here. So the prefrontal cortex controls a whole bunch of things that we call executive functions. And these are all just different skills, executive functioning skills um, that we use to kind of manage our behavior and to function in the world. And so these skills are, they kind of make up the what we would refer to as this is kind of the command center of the brain. So it's the part of the brain that, that controls pretty much everything. Um, planning, organizational skills, self-control, um, initiating or getting started on tasks, managing our time wisely, which I know a lot of our kids with ADHD brains have trouble with. Metacognition, so thinking at a higher level, not getting caught up in the details. And when I do testing, that's a lot of what I see is kind of getting caught up in the details. Um, or sometimes missing details, but just not always seeing the bigger picture. Um, working memory, which is holding information in your memory long enough to do something with it. And when I do IQ testing, I see lower scores on working memory for kids who have ADHD. Um, of course, attention, and that's the one that we always talk about with ADHD. But as you can see, that's only one of many executive functioning skills that are impacted and that we're looking at when we are diagnosing ADHD. And then flexibility, being able to, to make changes and shift between things. So a lot of our kids have trouble when it's time to stop something or when it's time to do something else. We have trouble shifting them. Um, and then also just persevering. So starting something and continuing even when it gets difficult and working through it until you finish it. That's really tough for a lot of kids with ADHD. And it's because this frontal part of the brain is not fully stimulated. So it's not doing its job at times when they may need it to do its job. So that's that, that's a quick summary of that, that prefrontal cortex. So then the next part that I wanted to really give you a quick overview is the limbic system, which also really is important when it comes to emotions. So there's these two major um, parts of the limbic system, the amygdala and the hippocampus. And you guys may have heard these terms before, but these are parts that, um, that both relate to how we regulate our emotions. And you can see here another, another picture of some brain studies, and there's been lots of research on this as well, but this is just one sample showing you that there's a difference in the activity going on in that limbic system for people who have ADHD versus people who don't. So we're not only seeing a difference in this part of the brain, but we're seeing a difference in that limbic system. And the reason that that's important is here because the limbic system is very much related to emotions and emotion regulation. That's the part of our brain that helps us process our emotions and experience pleasure or pain. Um, and it also is the part of our brain that responds to sensory input. And we know that a lot of our kids with ADHD are very sensory seeking or they might be sensitive to sensory input. Um, and then it also regulates their stimulation level. So we know many of them get are, have a tendency towards overstimulation. So what's happening is that that part of the brain is also not functioning properly. And so we have kind of a double whammy. We have two problems happening at the same time for kids who have ADHD brain. And so these two parts of the brains work parts of the brain work together. So when we experience an emotion, we, experiencing, we experience that and we process that with our limbic system. And then our prefrontal cortex, our command center, kind of helps us to think. That's our thinking part of our brain. So that's the part that helps us to think about, okay, what should I do? What are my choices? If I do this, what will happen? Um, it helps us to really kind of um, evaluate our options and plan and control our impulses so we're not just reacting. And so usually those two parts of the brain are supposed to work together very well. But in the ADHD brain, there's a couple of problems with that. And these are kind of the three main problems. So at the top, it says we rely on our limbic system, especially our amygdala, until our frontal lobe is developed. So when we're little, 
we really rely on that limbic system. We, it, it's processing emotions and it's processing sensory input. And that's pretty much all we have when we're toddlers. And so that, and we don't have that frontal lobe. It hasn't developed. And so it's not doing its job just yet. So at that age, we expect lots of tantrums, lots of emotions, lots of meltdowns. That's completely normal and developmentally appropriate for little ones. And then as their frontal lobe continues to develop, they should start to develop all those executive functioning skills that I told you about. But in the ADHD brain, the problems are that that development is delayed, like I mentioned before. So it's not developing as fast as it should be. So that's already a problem. The second problem is that, as I showed you, there's some problems and differences in that limbic system to begin with. So even if that this frontal lobe was was developing as fast as it should be, there's already some differences happening in that limbic system. And then the third problem is those two parts of the brain have lots of connections between them. And there's kind of this gate system that's present there that helps to regulate the messages going back and forth. And what some of the research is showing is that that gate system is also impaired in individuals with ADHD brain. So they have all three of these issues going on. Um, the reason I have a picture there of a stoplight is just to give you a visual that that frontal lobe is, is kind of works as our stoplight system. So even when we experience emotions in our limbic system, the frontal lobe is supposed to tell us, should I stop? Should I think about this? Or should I go and do something? And so when it's not functioning properly, it's like our stoplight is always on green just go. <laughs> just, I, I'm feeling a feeling. And so I'm just going to react. Um, and so that's why this is kind of the background of why we're seeing these overreactions and meltdowns and problems with emotion regulation in kids who have ADHD. So I wanted you guys to have an understanding of that because that's kind of the first step in figuring out what do we need to do to help as parents or as teachers or as counselors. Um, so that's what I wanna focus on now, now that we kind of have that understanding out of the way. Um, so there's a lot of things I could talk about. So obviously in therapy, this is a big thing we work on um, and sometimes for months, sometimes even years. And there's, there's a lot of work that can be done on helping kids with emotion regulation. And um, what I wanted to do today is kind of boil it down to five major things. And I'll talk about each one of these five things that to me are huge. And these are all things that we do kind of address in therapy as well. Um, and then of course, there's more to this, but this is this will be kind of an overview of these five. So the first one to me that's really, really important is just observing and understanding our kids. And part of that understanding is what I just went over. So really thinking about why and remembering the why. And as a parent, I mean, I have to do this daily along with the rest of you. So when my kids are melting down in front of me, I have to sit there and remember why are they having trouble with this? Why is this such a big reaction right now? And I have to think about what's going on in their brain. Um, because it helps me to empathize and it helps me to look at it differently when I think about it that way. So that's the first thing is remembering the why. Um, watching them closely and observing and getting to know what are their cues and what are their signs that they may be triggered, that there might be an emotional outburst coming. Um, and I know many of you know what I mean by this. You know, you can kind of see, you can see facial expressions, you can see signs with their body language. I mean, some kids, they will start to tense up, um, clench their fists and tense their muscles. Some kids will growl, you know, they'll start to make noises, frustrated noises. Some kids will stomp up the stairs and that's kind of a sign that, uh oh, they're getting angry. And so just, I think you have to watch and observe and learn their signs. And part of the reason for this is because not only do we need to know these things, but we need to actually bring the, their attention to it. So as they get older, we need to help them with some self-awareness and we need to let them know, this is what I've observed about you. Not in a critical way, but just in a, you know, I'm helping you understand yourself. I've observed that when you 
start to get frustrated, you clench your fists. Have you noticed that you do that? You know, I, I think that's really help for kid, helpful for kids because we start to make them more aware of their own bodies and their own cues and signs that they're not noticing. Um, and there, there is, and this is kind of a side note, but the whole idea of mindfulness, which we teach all the time in therapy, mindfulness is the idea of stopping and being mindful of our body, what's going on inside of our body, how we're feeling, what emotions we're feeling. And so as parents, when we watch and we observe and we give them that feedback, it helps them to maybe be more mindful and aware when it's happening to them. Um, and we also need to learn their triggers. So all, every kid has different triggers. And this is really helpful, especially when it comes to preventing meltdowns, which is what I'll talk about next. Um, but just understanding what are the things that really set them off and that are very likely to lead to some of these meltdowns. Um, and what we can do is kind of come up with some remedies or some solutions and have those, those solutions available to us. Um, and this is gonna prevent many, many meltdowns because one thing that I've learned working with kids with ADHD for many years is that when they have these meltdowns, they don't feel good about it. You know, they, it really does impact their self-esteem. Uh, they may seem like they move on quickly and they're on to something else because they have short attention spans, but it sticks with them. They know that they have trouble controlling their emotions. They don't like that. Um, they want to change it. They verbalize this to us in our session, in therapy sessions and in these evaluations that I do. They don't like it. And so it makes them feel really good about themselves when they can see that they were able to prevent or to stop one of these meltdowns from happening. And so it's helpful for us to be part of that and help prevent it as well. So for example, if they're hungry, if they are triggered by hunger, which both of my older kids are very much so. So I have snacks with me at all times. There's snacks in my purse, there's snacks in the car, there's snacks everywhere. And I can see it on their face when they're starting to, and they will say, I feel emotional mom and I don't know why. Um, and so it's nice that they can tell me that, but I can see it on their face. And so one of my go-to solutions at this point is here, have a snack and then we'll talk <laughs> because I've noticed it just makes a huge difference for them. And one reason, there's a neurological reason for that because um, what a snack does, what food does is it goes in and it stimulates that front part of the brain. It turns the switch on. And so then all of a sudden we have that command center working a little bit better. So it's helping to regulate those emotions that are kicking in. So a snack, it seems like such a simple solution, but a snack actually can be really, really helpful. That explains a lot, even about myself, you know, when I get hangry, yes. my husband says, uh oh, we have, she mentioned that she's hungry. We have about 12 minutes before she's a different person. Oh my gosh. So yes. That explains a lot. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right. I know we have really gotten to understand this in my household because my two older kids and my husband, they all tend to get hangry. And so I have really learned that snacks are a, an important tool. Um, so feeling tired is another really big one. So kids with ADHD brains are really impacted by sleep. And when they, so even the average person with a non-ADHD brain, what we would call kind of a neurotypical brain, will still be highly impacted by lack of sleep, right? When we don't get enough sleep and we're sleep deprived, we may have trouble focusing. We may be more emotional. We may be more reactive to others and more irritable. And so if you take all of that and then you think about a brain that's already understimulated and then they get they, they don't get enough sleep, it's an even bigger problem. So kids with ADHD have to have their sleep. It's so important. And as parents, I'm sure many of you have noticed this. You've noticed a difference when your kids don't get enough sleep. And so that's a really big one is working on their sleep habits and their sleep routine because if they're not getting enough sleep, you're already going to be having more meltdowns, guaranteed. Um, restlessness. So another thing is our kids with ADHD brains need movement. And the reason they need movement is because they're trying to turn that switch on in the front part of their brain. They're trying to stimulate their brain with movement. And it, it, does, it does stimulate the brain. So anytime you can give them physical activity and give them ways to fidget, that's going to be something that can prevent those meltdowns. It's going to actually help their brain to be regulating those emotions better. 
Um, so a lot of our kids need to be in, doing some kind of physical activity every day. They need to be allowed to fidget in the classroom as well as at home, whether it's using fidget toys or seating that allows them to move and wiggle or being able to stand up while they do things and move around the room. Um, so that can really help a lot. I actually keep fidget toys. Again, it's like the snacks. I keep fidget toys in my purse, in my car. We have lots of them at my office. Um, because to me, it's a really quick and easy thing. When you see that they're kind of getting frustrated, give them a snack, give them a fidget toy and see if those things help. Um, another thing that I've observed as a common trigger is just feeling overwhelmed when there's too much happening, um, too much to do, too much on their plate, too many things that we're asking them to do and they get overwhelmed and it leads to an automatic meltdown. And so if we can break things down and take it one step at a time, give one instruction at a time, um, try not to kind of add too much to their plate at once and they're much less likely to melt down on us. Um, and then that issue with overstimulation over because of the the limbic system having a little bit of difficulty processing um, sensory input that's coming in. And because of the fact that their front prefrontal cortex is also not regulating that and it's not stopping their impulses. So what you can do is reduce the sensory input. So, and many of you may have noticed this, that, that our kids with ADHD brains may really start to get revved up kind of at birthday parties or um, you know, when the classroom is getting kind of a little bit wild and restless, um, it really impacts them. And so sometimes just something as simple as, you know, taking them out in the hall for a little bit, taking them for a walk, um, just giving them a little bit of quiet and calm and giving them a break so that you can get that level of stimulation back down. Uh, that can be helpful with homework. Homework is a major trigger. And so there's lots of things. I mean, I could do lots of a whole presentation just on that, <laughs> but just one, one idea is making sure that they already have a designated area at home that you help them keep it organized. So they've got their supplies there. It's um, there's not too many distractions. It's a place that um, they feel comfortable in and so having that and having that structure of knowing where they need to go to do their homework and having a schedule for their homework, for their routine after school, I think that can be a helpful thing because when they get into that routine, they accept it a little bit better. One thing I've noticed with my kids is if I spring something on them and it's not part of that routine, they really have a hard time with that. And so what I found out is if I just, you know, keep them on a routine, even if they don't always have homework, what I learned is having homework time is just important to keep in the routine. They may not have homework that day, but maybe they can read during homework time. And what that leads to is they kind of start to accept that, that, that structure and they'll have, they'll push back less and they will, um, they will be less likely to get upset. So also a lot of our kids are triggered at certain times of day. And I've noticed that the after school time is kind of that witching hour when they get home from school, they've had a long day, they've had to focus and do their best. They've had to sit still. It's hard work for kids with ADHD brains because our schools are not designed for their brains. And so, and for the way that they learn. So when they get home at the end of the school day, it, I, it's just so common for me to hear parents say that that's a time where there's lots of meltdowns. And to add to that, our kids that are on medications, sometimes the medication is wearing off at that same time of day. And so they may kind of get some rebound symptoms. So it's just a rough time. And what I always suggest to parents is to plan around that. So know that that's a rough time. It's just gonna be a rough time. So don't plan right at that time to cram in all their homework or don't plan right at that time to run a bunch of errands. We have to kind of plan around what works best for them. So that might be a time of day where they just need to go outside and play and they need to have a snack and they need to rest for a little bit. And then they can refocus and then we can sit down and we can get through their work with fewer meltdowns and better focus, better attention. Um, so these are just some examples, but Understanding their triggers can be really, really helpful in prevention as a prevention strategy. So 
This next one that I wanted to talk about is separating feelings from behaviors because um, it's really important for all of us to keep in mind and for our kids to learn this too, that we can't control our feelings necessarily. They, they come and it's not like a switch that we can turn off or on. The emotions are there, whether we like it or not. But what we do have control over is our behaviors. So we can make choices with our behaviors and we can learn different behaviors. And so if we can kind of separate those two things, then we can handle them differently. So we can handle feelings one way, but handle the behaviors a little bit differently and talk about them differently. So as far as the feelings go, we have to kind of, as parents, we have to ride out the storm. We have to allow them to feel the feelings because we can't shut them off. We can't tell them to stop feeling that way. And we can't tell them they shouldn't feel that way. Uh, you know, none of that is going to work. And I'll talk about that on the next week. Those are things that can add fuel to the fire. But um, instead, they really just have to feel it. They have to get through it. Um, I've I heard the analogy before of feelings being like a tunnel that you can't go around it or over it. You have to go through it. You have to experience the feelings. And what happens is when we try to control feelings, it tends to escalate them and um, it kind of had, it backfires. So I have a picture of a lighthouse because the idea is that we have to kind of think of ourselves as the steady lighthouse and we have to help, help them ride out that storm. And so what they need from us is not, not more anger and not criticism. And you know they, what they need from us is to kind of be with them, allow them to feel the feelings, um, and not to let our emotions get in the way or escalate the situation. So I know that's easier said than done. And so we all, I think we all as adults and as parents have to work on that ourselves. We may have to do some work to figure out, you know, what is this triggering in me? What, what feelings am I feeling? And how do I need to cope with that? What do I need to do to cope with that so that I can be that steady lighthouse for them when they need it? Um, <clears throat> And I do think it's good for them to have some time to just self-soothe. And we may even need to have some tools available to help them with that. So some sensory tools can be helpful, like having some music. They can turn on some music. They can um, look through a book. They can have some um, soft stuffed animals or pillows. And they can go, you can have a corner set up in your house or an area where they can go that has lots of soothing sensory input for them. And that might be a place that you can practice and teach them to go to when they need to ride out that storm, when they just are feeling these big feelings and they need a minute. Um, and that can be one of the best things. And I know that our our temptation is to end it quickly. Like, let's get this, let's get this meltdown over with so we can move on with our lives. But it really backfires when we try to take control over that. So, um, so the other thing that we can do, I mentioned mindfulness earlier, and this is where mindfulness can be really helpful as a tool. If you can teach it and practice it at home, and it's also something they can learn in therapy as well, but um, that's the time when we need them to start to notice what's going on in my body right now. Why, you know, is my heart beating fast? Am I feeling really tense? Do I need to go squeeze something really tight? Does that help? If some, or if does, if somebody squeezes me, does that help? A lot of kids have noticed that pressure um, is very helpful because it just kind of helps to regulate those emotions, those big emotions that they're having. So sometimes even if they're acting crazy, it's actually pretty helpful to just go up and give them a hug. And you can ask, you can say, would it help if I give you a hug right now? But something that simple, and they need to learn through mindfulness, they need to kind of learn that this is something that helps me. Right now, I need a hug. Or right now, I need to be by myself for a little bit. Um, so I, the last one, the reason I have that highlighted in red is because that one is so extremely important. One thing that I've noticed is that all of us make the mistake sometimes of invalidating our kids' feelings. And we really have a tendency to do this with kids who have ADHD brains because they do have these overreactions that don't seem to fit the situation or the trigger. And so it's really easy for all of us to say, you know, you're overreacting or what, 
like this, you shouldn't feel this angry. This shouldn't be such a big deal. Why is this such a big deal? Why are you reacting this way? And we're really invalidating their feelings at that moment because regardless of how it makes us feel, they are feeling angry in that moment or they are feeling frustrated. And so it really actually helps deescalate things if we just validate that. And, and we point out, I can see that you're really frustrated right now. I, I understand why you're frustrated. Um, just something as simple as that, it kind of takes some of the wind out of their sails and they already sometimes will start to calm down because then they don't have to express to us through their behavior and through the crying and the screaming how they're feeling because we got it and they can see that we got it. Um, it also is helpful just for us to identify those feelings for them and help them learn words so that they can start to identify it for themselves. And there's lots of great tools for that. There's books on helping kids, good children's books to help kids identify their feelings. There's um, feelings, faces, um, charts, and sets of cards that you can buy. There's all kinds of different tools. And um, I think that's a really helpful thing. A lot of kids come into us and they can identify maybe happy, angry, and sad. <laughs> and those might be the three things they can tell us. And so we need to expand that and give them more words because the more that they can start to identify it for themselves and communicate it to us, then it, again, it kind of takes the wind out of the sails. It helps them to, to start to calm themselves. So then I kind of touched on this a little bit, but this is important. There's a lot of ways that we can actually make things worse when they're having these meltdowns and overreactions. And we all do it. And so don't be hard on yourself if, you, if these things sound familiar because all of us do it. It's completely natural, but it's something we need to be aware of. And we need to try to um, you know, stop ourselves when we are having these reactions. So when we are tempted to criticize and you know, a, an example would be um, that age, that gap that I talked about earlier, and parents are noticing that their child is behaving immaturely, but they're a very intelligent child. And so a lot of kids will hear that from their parents. They will hear their parents say to them, you know, you're behaving like, um, like a little kid, like you're, you're acting like a baby. Why are you acting? You're not acting your age, act your age, you know, and that's a criticism that really hurts because they're, they're being themselves and it's not something they're doing intentionally. Um, those invalidating comments that I mentioned earlier, like, why do you, why are you angry? You shouldn't be angry. This isn't a big deal. Um, this isn't something that should make you upset. So that's very invalidating. Um, another thing that the kids tell me, so my clients have told me this for years, my clients who have ADHD, they have told me that it is so frustrating when their parents will give them all these long explanations or decide to give them a lecture right when they're in the middle of the meltdown <laughs> and, they're, and they're feeling these big feelings. They're having that flooding of all these feelings and their thinking brain is not working at that moment. It's just not working. So that's not a moment that we should be explaining things or lecturing them. None of it's going to go in. And in fact, it's going to add fuel to the fire. It's gonna be more frustrating and overwhelming and overstimulating to them. So save those for later, save the explanations for later when they are calm and they're ready to listen, their thinking brain is turned on and they're able to listen. Um, the same thing with questions. So a lot of times we kind of pelt them with questions. What happened? Why are you upset? What did he do? Did he do something? Did you do something? Who said it first? Um, you know what I mean? When we just help them with questions and it's overwhelming, it's too much. And again, they can't think through why they're upset at that moment. They're just upset. And we need to kind of let them get through that first. And then the last one I see all the time as well. And this goes back to the beginning when we talked about why these things are happening. For a lot of parents, we just, we don't understand it. And so we have expectations for our kids to behave in a way that's age appropriate, right? We expect our 13 year old to act like a 13 year old. And unfortunately, if they have an ADHD brain and their brain is wired this way, they may not always act like a 13 year old. And that, that gap is 
tough and it causes a lot of frustrations for parents and for kids. So if we can have more realistic expectations and we can understand what's going on in their brain and why this might be tough for them. And maybe when we kind of adjust those expectations, then we may react differently and we may be able to be more understanding and less critical of them. And so I think that makes a huge difference. And a lot of what I do when I go over diagnoses and results in my, um, from my evaluations is just helping parents to adjust their expectations and it makes a world of a difference. So this last one is another one that I could do a whole presentation on, but just to kind of sum this one up quickly, kids with ADHD need lots of structure. And the reason is because that prefrontal cortex usually is what gives us internal structure. That is the part of our brain that structures things for us. And when it's not working properly, it can feel very out of control. And so what they need is a lot of external structure. So that as parents and teachers, we can provide that for them. And it doesn't mean there's they're stuck with us providing it forever. And that's what a lot of parents are concerned about, you know, that we need them to be able to do this on their own at some point. And what you need to focus on is that if we provide them the structure now, then we're setting up some good habits for them and some good tools for them that they will then carry with them when they transition out and into adulthood. So we are actually setting them up for success when we provide all this structure for them. So one way is giving choices. And so when, when they are having these meltdowns, they need to know what are their options? What can they do? They can't hit, they can't throw things, you know, they can't scream and yell. So what can they do? We have to let them know they have to have some options. You can go over here to your, your calm down spot. You can, um, you can go to your room for a little bit and then come back and talk to me. You know, we can give them these choices and then all of a sudden they've got options. It simplifies things for them. Um, and then also the consequences. So I talked earlier about the difference between feelings and behaviors. Behaviors do have to have consequences, even though we need to let them feel the feelings and we can't control those feelings, we still need to handle the behaviors. And so if they hit us, we don't need to allow them to hit us because they're upset. That's a behavior that we can have rules around and we can have consequences. And that's gonna help with motivation. That's gonna help to motivate them to make different choices. So we do have to set up those consequences, but I would say keep all this really, really clear and really specific. So have some rules for the household and hang those up keep it visual so everybody knows, and it's the same rules that apply to everyone in the household, and then talk to them about if they break one of those rules, then what is the consequence? And then make sure you follow through on that. That structure, if you can be really firm about it, it starts to structure their behavior and it gives them some guidance because they need that guidance. Um, reward systems do the same thing. So the you guys have probably tried or seen you know, behavior charts and reward charts and point systems, you know, those kinds of systems can be really helpful because they provide the same level of structure. And what I would say about those is just keep them really simple. So just pick a couple of behaviors that you want to work on with them and think about what you want them to do instead of what not to do. So rather than saying, you know, no slamming doors, um, then you would say close, close doors quietly. And so make sure you phrase it in what they need to do and keep it simple and then be very consistent with it. A lot of people say they've tried these systems and it doesn't work. But when I go back through and pick it apart, I find reasons why it didn't work. Um, and it might've been too, too many things that they were focusing on, or maybe they were focusing too much on taking away instead of earning. So kids with ADHD tend to do better when they're earning rather than losing. So set up these systems so that they're earning points or they're earning rewards. Um, and then just practice these things. So all of these, these behaviors that we're teaching them, it's not gonna work after one week or one or two tries. They need a lot of practice and a lot of repetition because they tend to go right back to their instinctual patterns 
uh, unless we just really do the same thing every single time. And then you'll slowly start to see that they're gonna start falling into that pattern. Um, but it's not gonna work if you just give it a couple of tries. Um, and I, I really think that one's important because it's gradual with, it, with, with kids who have ADHD brains, making these changes is very gradual. And so they may be on a different timeline than their peers. It may take them a little bit longer to get some of these skills. Um, but if you guys can be consistent and you can stick with it and you can be patient and don't compare them to others their age, just look at them for who they are, then they will get there. And I see this all the time with my clients, they get there. They just may get there on a different timeline. And it's gonna depend a lot on how consistent you were and how repetitive, how much did you practice? And then this last one is just celebrate the little things, the little successes, because sometimes we're waiting for the big things in order to congratulate them or reward them. And they have short attention spans and they, they are impulsive and they live in the moment. So waiting too long is just not helpful to them. We have to celebrate every single little thing. If they, if they you know, make a good choice, point it out in that moment, praise them, reward them, make a big deal out of it. Because the more you build on those small things, then you start to see progress in the right direction. So this is just kind of a quote to sum up what I think is really important. So when these little people are overwhelmed by big emotions, it's our job to share our calm, not to join in their chaos. And that's a big thing that I see parents doing one or the other. You know, I think it's, it's helpful when I see parents that are sharing their calm and being that steady lighthouse for their kids. And it brings the kids around. They start to learn that. They, they, um, they take that as their guide from us and they learn that as they get older. And joining in their chaos, it just always escalates um, and always adds to the fire. So I think this is our goal and it's not gonna be perfect, but I think if this is what you're aiming for, then it will make a difference. So I think that's all. And I think there is time for questions. Yeah, we do have a couple of questions and I, I love, I love this quote. And then, you know, you were talking about emotions are, are like a big tunnel and you have to go through them. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, Robert Frost. And he says, the best way out is always through, through. you know, yeah, yes. through something. Um, so yes. could you recommend a book to use about feelings? Um, and is it okay for us to allow our kids to punch or scream into a pillow or things like that? Or do you not recommend that? So oh, those are good questions. Okay, so first of all, there are lots of good books. And I think what'll be easier is if I send you a list. Could I send you a list, Michelle? And then you could share that with the group. Yes, absolutely. When we send out the video. So I'll do that. I'll send a book list um, to give you guys several ideas. And then um, as far as punching a pillow or um, like screaming into a pillow. So having, having tools and having outlets is important, but I think we have to balance it with, um, with trying to think about ways that they, things that are going to allow them to calm their body and calm their mind and calm their emotions. So sometimes the punching, what we've found is that it can actually, uh, it can continue to provide stimulation rather than calming that level of stimulation. And so, and, and honestly though, that's always been my approach is to kind of avoid the punching, but maybe have them squeeze something, um, have them um, have them use like Play-Doh or something that they can really put some pressure on as opposed to punching. However, I have also had clients who have said it made a big difference when they were able to, like when they bought a little like punching bag or one of those um, toys that you hit it and it bounces back. Um, I've had some clients that have said that was helpful to them. So one thing I have learned in doing this for many years is that every child is different and we have to kind of try things. We have to use trial and error a lot with them and figure out what works and what doesn't work. If you allow the punching of the pillow and if it's helping and it's not encouraging them to then act out aggressively in other ways, then it's okay. 
Um, and so I think it's one of those things that you kind of have to test out. But in general, the goal would be finding things that would that would lower their level of stimulation and have kind of a soothing effect on them. So if you can direct them towards those things, that's always gonna be the most helpful. That's fantastic. Um, there's, there's another question here. I would love tips for when grandparents are, the, are trying to invalidate you. They're saying that, oh, your child is just manipulating you. Um, how do you explain to the grandparents that that's not what's happening? Right. So I think that this is something we all deal with because we have kids who um, are wired differently than the average population. And so there's a lot of a lot of criticism from others, a lot of judgment from others, a lot of comparing. Um, and that's hard on us as parents because it does it makes you feel bad. It makes you feel like you're doing some something wrong as a parent, and that's why these behaviors are happening. So what I would say is first remember what we talked about today, remember what you've learned and continue to learn more about ADHD and about your child, but keep that in the back of your mind. You know your child better than anyone else, including their grandparents, and you know why they're behaving the way they are. You know why they're struggling. Um, and so keep that in the back of your mind always. And then the second part is advocating for them. And we do have to do a lot of that. We have to do a lot of advocating, even with family members, and letting people know, okay, he does have trouble with this, and this is why he has trouble with it, and we're working on it, and here's how we're working on it. And you don't actually owe anybody any of those explanations, really, um, to be honest, but if, if it's helpful, and I think, with, especially with family, then it can, I think you can explain some of those things to them and let them know that this is what's going on. This is why he struggles. And this is what we're doing about it. This is what we're working on and let them know you would appreciate their support and you would appreciate them, you know, helping with this process. Um, and sometimes that does the job and sometimes it doesn't. And so, but I think it's good for us to advocate for them and we have to do it with family. We also have to do that with teachers, with coaches, um, and it may look to other people like at times we are enabling or we are allowing things that we shouldn't be allowing, um, which is why you've got to keep in the back of your mind what you know to be true about your child and about why you're doing what you're doing. Um, we kind of have to build our own confidence as parents of kids with ADHD. We have to know that we understand our children and we are doing what's best for them based on what we have learned. And not everybody's going to understand that. And not everybody will agree with that, but um, all we can do is kind of remember that and then advocate for them. Fantastic. We, so we do have several more great questions. I'm going to put this one in next because it'll be quick. Do you, does your counseling practice accept insurance? So our counseling practice, we our therapists accept United Healthcare only, um, as well as private pay. But right now we are in the process of hiring, so all of our therapists are full, and this is kind of a challenge right now in the whole field of mental health. Many many clinics are full and have wait lists. It can be hard to get in with a therapist, and therapy is so so helpful for these kids with ADHD, and so. I would encourage you to, if you're interested in, in getting a therapist set up for your child, um, go ahead and get on a wait list if there are wait lists. You know, at our practice, we have, um, we're actually not adding to our insurance wait list at the moment because we have so many still waiting on there. Um, but we do have a therapist, a couple of therapists that are hopefully going to be joining us soon and they will only be self-pay at the moment. So, but we are able to add clients to the wait list and hopefully get them in in the next couple of months. So that's where we're at, but I'm constantly referring out to other practices in the area and checking to see their availability. And one great website that I would suggest looking at is called Psychology Today. And if you go on that website, you can do a search and you can put in all of your criteria. You can put in, you know, the age range of your child, the diagnosis, um, the area that you live in. If you prefer a male or female therapist, you can put in your insurance. Is that a .com? It's psychologytoday.com. Yes. 
Okay, and we, we use it. Yeah, we use it all the time when we're trying to refer clients out, um, but it just helps you narrow your options so you know exactly who you need to contact. And if they have a wait list, just go ahead and get on the wait list because right now it's, you know, you may need to do that. Okay. We only have about five minutes left, but I want to get to as many of these questions as we can. So how do you get your moody 16 year old who never wants to talk to you to talk about their feelings and um, get it out? Yes, that is a tough one. <laughs> okay. So, so the teens are the tough ones when it comes to emotions. Um, so we struggle with this even as therapists as well. And I can tell you the strategies that we use that can be pretty helpful are um, not using talk actually, but using other formats. So using um, writing, sometimes we can get them to write something to us. Um, like having, I've had some families that were able to do a journal where the parent would write a page and they'd pass it on and then the, the teen would write something and then they'd pass it back. And just through writing, they would, they would slowly start to share some things. Um, another thing that we've used a lot is art, um, being able to express their emotions through art. And then when they've created their art and we can sometimes then go and ask questions about it and they will sometimes open up to us a little bit more when they're describing what they created and why they created it. Um, some parents have even done art classes together with their team. And that's another way to kind of open that door. And, um, and then I would say the other option is um, through some of those tools that I mentioned earlier, I know that the feelings faces are a little bit more on the childish end, but we, there are some really great um, like feelings wheels and charts that, that help kids and help teens to communicate better and identify how they're feeling. And we use those more with older kids. So it, I have one, that's another thing I'll look for and see if I can attach it and send it. But um, it's a wheel that kind of says, okay, there's angry. And then we can separate out angry into a whole bunch of other more detailed emotions um, and so we can kind of break it down. Maybe you're not just angry. Maybe you are, um, maybe you are frustrated or you are, um, I can't remember all of them right now, but it breaks it down into several more specific emotions. And so sometimes having that gives them a way that they can communicate a little bit better. Some kids just, they'll point to it. We'll bring it to them and say, tell me how you're feeling right now. Just point. And that sometimes they'll do it. They'll point, but they will not say it. They don't want to talk about it. Uh, so we kind of have to get creative with teens and, and figure out ways to get our foot in the door with them. The other thing I would say is keep the door open with them. So just check in sometimes and just say, hey, how are things going? Um, you know, I'm here if you ever want to talk about anything. And um, I'd love to hear what's going on at school, what's going on with your friends, but you don't have to talk about it. So if there's no pressure and you just keep opening that door with them, uh, then that's another way that I've seen it really be helpful because eventually they start to kind of wander in and they start to share more and open up a little bit more. Oh, that's so those, fantastic advice. Those are a couple ideas. Yes. Um, do you... The next couple of slides, are they about ADDA or do you have your yes. contact? Yes. Okay. So if you have questions about ADDA, you can follow them on Facebook. You can call 281-690-1177 or email. Um, and I think there was one last slide about what our next meeting is going to talk about. Uh, nope, that's an old one. Nope, okay, never mind. One, huh? Oh, that's this one. Uh, yes, okay. Yeah, that's about this one. Uh, do you, you have a slide that has your contact info, right? There, well, it's there. Yes. So actually, yeah, there's my email address up on the screen. Um, our website is just MissouriCityFamilies.com. And, um, and then you guys are welcome and up on the website. We have a contact form. If you want to contact me that way, um, you can email me. Our phone number is up there on the website as well. And you can um, give us a call, but feel free to contact me if you have questions or if you need ideas and resources. And I'll try to send a book list as well as the, the feelings wheel that I was mentioning. 
Okay, fantastic. We do have a few more questions, but we're out of time, unfortunately. Um, so doctor, we can send you the chat and you can reach out to these people or if, if you have a question that was not answered, please check out um, Dr. Lindsay Asawa at Missouri City Families and uh, contact her with your questions so that you can get, get answers to whatever you need. Um, so thank you all so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Lindsay, for being here with us. You're it's welcome. been fantastic and so many good tips and so much good uh so much good information. I really enjoyed it, even though, you know, I have two boys and one of them is currently 19. And even though they don't have ADHD, this has been eye-opening for me as well. So it's, it's really been great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, everybody have a great uh, rest of your evening and enjoy your week. And um, next month, I think Allison will be back to be here with you. So thank you for joining us. And um, and let us know if you need anything. Bye bye. Bye. Securities and advisory services offered through Triad Advisors, member FINRA and SIPC, Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated, and Triad Advisors LLC are not affiliated. Advisory services offered through Consolidated Planning Group. Incorporated. Consolidated Planning Group Incorporated is not affiliated with Triad Advisors.